Welcome to Uncharted Journeys. I'm your host, Kathy McKnight. If you're like me and you've ever sat back and wondered, how did I get here, whether literally or figuratively, in terms of your career or life in general, then you're in good company and have come to the right place. On Uncharted Journeys, you'll hear from amazing women about their straight and narrow, zigzaggy, or somewhere in between paths to success. Today's guest knows a thing or two about Swagger, a former TV host, chief firestarter, and advertising creative director turned training guru, swagger coach, and speaker. She has 20 years of heart and soul-fueled experience in people development, authenticity, leadership, and communication. Her superpower? Transforming corporate culture, exploding employee engagement, all the while releasing exponential human potential, which I absolutely love. She's not afraid to bring her high energy and her rebel spirit to all that she does. In demand by leaders and companies around the world, she has... She had also had and continues to have 10 minutes of fame, having been featured pretty much on all the major networks and countless podcasts and radio stations around the world. Her book, Swagger, Unleash Everything You Are and Become Everything You Want, is a must-read, game-changer, brilliant and empowering, life-changing read. I consumed it in pretty much a day. So it's no wonder that she is a Wall Street Journal, US Day Today, and Amazon number one best-selling author. Welcome, Leslie M. Hi, I love that. You could be my hype woman. I'll just take you everywhere with me and I'll go over to you, Kathy. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. And you know what? We both travel so much. I, we're probably crossing paths somewhere in the same city at some point. So just let me know. Send me your itinerary and I'm there. Thank you so much for making time to connect today. It's always great to have a fellow Canadian on the show. And I got to say, I thought I had a cool title with Chief Problem Solver. You've had a couple. Chief Firestarter and Swagger Coach. So fun. I guess that's one of the things with, you know, when you either get to that top level in an org or write your own book, you can pretty much call yourself anything. So uh, well done on those. Well, you can kind of call yourself whatever you want anyway. So I encourage everybody to give themselves a cool title just for life. That would be a good thing. (laughs) I like that. So I gave our audience the highlights. Tell them a little bit more about uh, what you do besides being a best-selling author. Uh, These days, I spend my time split between speaking to support my book. So I travel the world. I still run my training company and I do corporate training again, all over the world. So I'm also on planes. We can hang out in airport lounges. I work with, you know, fortune 500, fortune 100 companies like Google and PepsiCo and Disney and Uber and TD bank and all that, that cool stuff. Um, I do one-on-one coaching with executives, which is a lot of fun. Um, That's kind of, you know, my life these days. It's a, it's a good gig. It sounds like a good gig and clearly you're very passionate about what you do. So that's, I mean, that always, you got to have a reason to get up in the morning, right? The first day that you're in the shower going, oh, I don't want to go to work. It is time to change your job. Yeah. I mean, we all have those moments, you know, it can't be perfect all the time, but I think if you're dreading your life, never a good sign. No, absolutely not. uh, 100%. As my audience knows, I always start off our conversations with four questions. So if you're ready, we'll jump into it. Let's go. What was the first career you remember wanting to do when you grew up? I wanted to be the person who named the nail polishes and the lipsticks. I used to go to Eaton's with my mother and I would look at the names and I would be just, just, it was so magical, you know, like charismatic coral and perfect peach. And I was like, I want to do that. Who does that? So apparently I wanted a career in marketing from the time that I was about five. 
you know, you say Eaton's for those of you listening, not inside, not, uh, not living in Canada and are younger than what, 30, I guess. Uh, Eaton's is like the Nordstrom's equivalent (laughs) or Saks Fifth Avenue, somewhere in between there. But it was Canada's biggest department store for a very long time and very sad that it's gone. A little memory lane there for, for those of you, a little context. And, And dating myself. Thank you very much. Yeah. Fully dated myself. I, I'm, there. <laughs> I'm sitting right along there with you, so it's all good. Was there who was the first big influence in your life? Oh, my mom, a hundred percent. My mom was like the OG swagger queen badass. She was everything. She didn't follow any rules. She was a feminist. She was a highly creative. She was a groundbreaker in so many ways. And from the time that I was little, she always kind of walked the talk and modeled everything that I wanted to be and encouraged my individuality from day one. And I mean, it's, I could spend 20 minutes of the podcast talking about my mom, but she went on to be considered the world's foremost and creator of the, the women's independent solo travel movement. So she, she was my hero and my inspiration for my entire life. That's amazing. I've got to check into so the the women's independent travel movement. What I, I'm not familiar with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, she started. You know, back in the day, she started a newsletter for women who were traveling by themselves, and this was in the 80s. Um, she was divorced and wanted to be able to travel, and you know, there was so much stigma around women traveling on their own then. It was dangerous. It was untoward. It was all of these things. And she was like, to hell with that. And she started this movement called Journey Woman for women's solo travel. Um, she started off with a, a newsletter and subscribers. She eventually got to hundreds of thousands of sub- subscribers. She started her own mail platform, um, called SheMail to help women connect safely to travel or to meet each other in different countries. And uh, and then she went online and she started a website. She won every web award there is to win. She, Time Magazine in the year 2000, named their top 100 innovators of the century across a variety of categories. She was the top innovator for travel. She's been to the White House. She was, you know, uh, an, an O Magazine, Good Morning America. She traveled the world. She was not your typical mother. When she passed away, she had like 60,000 followers on Twitter. Holy crap. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So no wonder that you and I know you have a sister. Any other siblings? Nope. There's not enough space in the world for more than my sister and I. My sister, so, my sister was Erica M., who was the first female um, VJ on Much Music, which is like Canada's MTV. And she was on camera for 15 years and then went on to be a groundbreaker trailblazer in the marketing to moms space and the social media space. She was like one one of the OGs as well in building community through through blogging. She built the biggest blogging platform in Canada for women. She's, yeah, we're, we're, we had very high standards set for us when we were little. So no, no overachievers in your family at all. It's sickening, sickening. There was so much pressure, you know? Oh man. So from, um, you know, with your sister being clearly big into music now, you know, you could have either leaned into that or you could have leaned very far away from that. So this is either a very easy song, uh, easy question, or perhaps a very difficult question. Is there a song that epitomizes your career path? And did you ask her for some help on this question? <laughs> well, no. And in fact, I was a singer for many years. I moved to the UK when I was 17 to, pers- uh, sorry, when I was 19 to pursue my dreams of being a singer. So we were both super into music. That was the beginning of both of our, our lives. So I have to choose 
a song that is actually in keeping with my other little side passion, which is boxing. I'm a, I'm an avid amateur boxer. And um, this song was my walkout song when I competed in my first sanctioned amateur bout in front of 900 people at a black tie event to raise money for cancer research. I was 51 years old at the time. <laughs> so it's got to be Mama Said Knock You Out by LL Cool J. I think it kind of says it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh my God. There are so many layers to you. <laughs> Audience warning. This podcast is going to be like two hours long. <laughs> could be. We could keep going. If I could clear this frog out of my throat, excuse me as I, you know, hack and cough. <clears throat> no, no worries at all. Um, we are authentic here, so it's all good. Uh, is there a road, if your career was actually a road, is there, what would the name be? Probably the long and winding road. I would have to say uh, there, uh, my whole career has been a series of very happy accidents and uh, an exercise in stepping into opportunity. So I never knew where it was going to go. There's not in a million years could I have guessed or planned for where I would be today. Not in a million years. Which we so many of us find ourselves that way. We we sit back and and per my intro, we often sit back sometimes and go how did I get here? Yeah. You know, whether it's career and we look at what we're doing day to day, whether it's our, our home life, where we're living, if we have kids, if we don't, whatever it is. And it's, it's good to reflect on that, but I love, I love the way you put it, that you stepped into opportunities. Yeah. The whole, how did I get here thing? I think um, I always, I always lean into the tone that someone takes. Like if it's, how did I get here? You know, as opposed to how did I get here? Right. That's that's so much of my work is is helping women. I mean, helping everybody. But, you know, a, a lot of women when they wake up one day and they ask themselves, how did I get here? How how did I become this? I don't recognize myself anymore. And that's sort of sort of where I like to step in and go, OK, let's figure that out. Let's unpack that and let's get you back to who you were or who you wanted to be or who you've dreamed of, of being. So this this series of opportunities and I, I love the way you you talk about answering that question, how did I get here? And the intonation of how that question is asked says so much. I couldn't have said it better. What has your career journey looked like? I mean, boxing at a at 50s, singer at 19, you've traveled the world, you've lived in New York. Like, how is how has it transpired? What's it been like? So I I moved to the UK when I was when I was 19 to pursue my my dreams of of being a singer, which I did for many years. Um, but again, happy accident. My music partner, who I met in the UK, was the head of acquisitions at a film company. So we spent so much time together. We were in the studio for hours and hours recording and rehearsing. And he used to give me scripts and say, have a read of this and tell me what you think. So I started reading scripts, fell in love with the structure and the, the format of, of screenplay. I, I had always been a writer. That had always been my, my passion. And I started to work as a script uh, analyst, a script editor, and a script doctor eventually. So I did that over years while I was singing. And then because I, I'd sort of learned so much about the structure of, of you know TV ideas and, and screenplay and so on, I started to develop... TV ideas, and then I would go and pitch them to production companies in the hopes of selling one. You know, it's a side gig, right? But I'm someone who goes big or goes home. That's how I do everything. I'm like, if you're if you're not going to be all in, don't do it. That's always been my attitude. So I would go in and pitch like crazy, right? I would, you know, bring all my A-game energy and stuff. And on one of these occasions, someone who owned a production company said, you know, you should be on camera. 
And I was like, oh, of course I should be on camera. You're a genius. Put me on camera. And, uh, and they gave me a talk show. And so I stepped into this opportunity. I was so excited. The only problem was that I wanted to be white Oprah. That was my dream. Like I was like, I'm going to get to help people. I'm going to get to contribute meaningfully to society. I'm going to lift people up. And they wanted me to be Jerry Springer. And I just could not, I, it was so completely antithetical to my values and to what I believed in in this life. I didn't want to be exploitative. I didn't want to be negative. I did like four episodes of the show and then went to them and said, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. Um, so they generously let me out of my contract, which they didn't have to do. But I figured, look, somebody wanted me on camera. Maybe somebody else would. I had an agent at that point and so on. So I started I started um, auditioning and I ended up working on camera for a bunch of years. I, I was uh, the original, the host of the original Fashion Police before it got kind of mean and nasty. We uh, we had the original Fashion Police in the UK. I did a show, a live late night show um, called The Warehouse. I did a bunch, a bunch of stuff, but it was never kind of what I, what I thought it was going to be because I, again, I wanted to help people. I could see that that was this growing need in me. I, I understand my personal power. I know um, who I am. I know what my values are. And I, I wanted to be a, someone who could lift other people up. But I wasn't really getting a chance to do it. It was very shallow to me. And so I moved back to Canada when I was 36 and really had no resume. I had, you know, I'd been on TV. I'd been a script editor and a singer. Like who, that's not saleable skills in the big grown up world, particularly. So I figured I could tap into the the stuff that I had sort of learned about and developed an understanding of media, being a writer, you know, being very sort of, you know, media savvy and so on. So I literally decided to talk my way into an advertising agency. I thought I could work in advertising. I could be a copywriter. I could, I could do that. But I had no portfolio. I had nothing. So I just was relentless. And I kept calling and calling and calling this creative director at the biggest ad agency in Canada. And it took about 10 days before he finally picked up the phone. And when he did, uh, he said, hi, Carlos Garavito, you know, and I said, uh, Carlos, you want me? He said, excuse me, what? I said, you want me? He said, I, I do. Who is this? I said, let me let me tell you why you want me. And I pitched myself as an asset, someone who had all of this experience and who was a grown up and, you know, was a writer. And and he was intrigued. So he invited me to come in and meet him. We talked for two hours and we didn't even talk about advertising. We talked about life and things and whatever. And then he walked me down the hall to meet the president of the agency. And I talked to him for another couple of hours and we had this great conversation. And then they walked me down to the head of strategy and I talked to her for, you know, an hour. And at the end they said, okay, we'll give you a shot. And they hired me as an intermediate copywriter. So my peers were probably 24, you know, and that I was 36, but I was like, I'll take it opportunity, right? Foot in the door. And within about 10 months, I was creative director. Wow. Because I, I brought all these grown up skills to the table. I understood people, you know, I had a passion for, for developing talent and, and so on. But even there, I felt, and I did it, I did it for, for, you know, a few years. I recognized that in this corporate world, because advertising in its own way is the corporate world, especially when you're, you're working at a big, big agency, that's part of a, a big holding company and so on. And I watched what the stress and the pressure and the expectation did to people. It made them angry. Everybody was insecure. Everybody was shut down. 
they were constantly in a panic. They, they didn't know how to trust their own creative process. And I wanted to help them so desperately, but I was busy doing the work. I was busy putting out client fires and dealing with politics and all of that crap. And I came home one day and I said to my husband, I feel like I'm using my superpowers for evil instead of good. And I, there's, there's something bigger that is meant for me. And I want to help these people. And I feel like I could do it better from the outside than I can from the inside. So I think I want to quit my job and start a training company. And he said, but, but Leslie, you hate training, first of all, and you're also really untrainable. But I was like, yeah, but who better to start a training company than someone like me? And that's what I did. I quit my job and I started a training company. Um, And I did it I, I, out of instinct, like it was all instinct. It was, what do, what do I wish that someone had helped me to know? What, what's my area of expertise? And how can I translate that into experience for, for people? And my intention was, I want to make them feel something so profound through this experience that they want to change. And then I want to give them the really tangible, hardcore skills so that they can change the very next day. You know, and and that was the whole ethos of my training company. And it it struck a chord with people. And initially, my first clients were advertising agencies because that that's where, you know, I knew the world and so on. But to my surprise, I got to say to my surprise, it started to grow well beyond that. And what was happening was that people who had taken my training uh, would would move from the agency side over to the client side. And then they would tell everybody in the organization, you've got to do this training. It's the best training ever. And then those clients started to, to call me. And then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I have not, did not spend a dime on any advertising or marketing, uh, uh, quite ironically. My entire business grew word of mouth. And it got to the point where we were developing and delivering Google's global marketer training program. And they were flying us around the world, you know, like for four years in a row, we did that. It was, it was incredible how, how it just blew up. And, and so I did that. Um, and then I, my dream was to make it bigger, but I didn't want to compromise the values of the company. We were very much a boutique company. Everybody who trained for me were subject matter experts who I taught how to be trainers. I didn't hire trainers. You had to have lived in the world that you were training and you'd had to have walked the, the, the halls and done the work and so on. And I wasn't willing to compromise on that at all. So we grew very, very slowly. Um, but I wanted to make the discoveries that I was making about human nature and about what holds us back and what gets in the way of us be able to express all of our potential in the world. And I'd seen it over and over and over these thousands of training rooms that I, that I'd been in and doing the kind of work that I was doing. Um, I, um, I was approached to write a book and I said, that's what I want to write a book on. I want to write a book that's going to help people to unleash all of their potential. So I started writing a book. And then, uh, let's say I finished the book. I delivered the book February, 2020 surprise. And then, um, pandemic hit and I was like, Oh crap. Okay. I, and I'd been moving more towards speaking a lot for the, the prior couple of years. I'd been doing more and more speaking engagements and so on. Um, and my training company just stopped dead. It was just, there was no, there was no training for the, for the first year. And I never wanted to run a a virtual training company. For me, it wasn't meaningful. I like people. I want to get in there and, you know, get dirty and stuff. Um, 
so I tried to put a hold on that and I just focused on my book. My book launched uh, May 2021. And uh, and then it hit the USA Today Wall Street Journal bestseller lists, which just gave everything this beautiful boost. And it was perfect timing. I mean, everybody needed to understand this concept of swagger. We were our lives had changed so dramatically. And I um, mean, it just it just, you know, struck a chord with people. And now I spend my time. We're back to training again, which is great. My company was pretty much decimated in that process. You know, we couldn't sustain the company, but my trainers continued to work to work for me. So I just continued to rebuild it. And now I spend a lot of my time coaching, which I started to do over the pandemic. I, I had the bandwidth to do it finally, and I love it with a passion and speaking and supporting the book. And that's my whole crazy, crazy journey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like, hold on, sister. Here we go. Right. Twists and turns and ups and downs and never saw what was coming. Never. Not at one point could I have anticipated any of it. I just kept saying yes to things. That was that's my secret. Just saying, yeah, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. And, and having no idea of what I was doing and never pretending anything otherwise. I was like, yeah, I don't know how to do it, but I'll have a go. Yeah. No, don't know what I'm this time, I, I'm going to tell you that is one of the secrets to success. Is never do the fake it till you make it. Don't, don't do that. It's, we do that to ourselves. And what it does is it kind of forces us to invalidate where we are in our journey. We're so, you know, and, and, and we become like ashamed of where we are, even though we're further along than we were two years prior, and we're going to be further along two years later. But when we, when we do the whole fake it till you make it thing, we're walking around going, oh, I got it. I know it. Yeah, I could do it. No, no problem. You lose the greatest asset that you have for growth. And that's the ability to ask for help. It's the ability to put your hand up and go, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? Can you teach me? Can you show me? And people will help you and people will show you. And then you step up to the plate and you swing hard and you fail and you swing again and you learn and you grow. And before you know it, you you do know what you're doing. And you never had to pretend that you that you knew more than you did, which is excruciating, terrifying. And it's it's the root cause of the imposter syndrome. Asking for help is something that so many people, men, women, doesn't matter, have such a hard time doing. I know my career has been very circuitous. And one of the things that I've tried really, really hard to do, because again, growing up, you weren't encouraged to do that. It was like, don't ask, because then people will think less of you if you don't know. So it was very much just pretend, right? But when you start asking for help, when you start enabling others, not only to share their knowledge and their expertise, but to share in your vulnerability, the connection you create there, you can't, you can't get that anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and I think it's fascinating that you've recognized that. And it sounds like you, you did that pretty early on. So I'm, I'm wondering, was there, was there something, um, a defining moment, decision, action, where that solidified for you? Certainly your mom told you you could do and, and modeled it, as you said, you can do whatever you want. You can, whatever you put your head to, just heads down and get it done, figure it out kind of thing. But was there something that really significantly impacted the trajectory um, of your career to really get to where you are today? Not necessarily maybe doing what you're doing, but your philosophy. Well, my, my mother, again, was instrumental in that. I'll, I'll tell you a really cute story. So when we were very, very little, um, 
it was back in the day when the phone was still stuck to the wall and it had the long, long, long phone cord, you know, the long twisty phone cord. And my sister, my, my sister's two years older than me. So maybe she was seven or you know, seven or eight or something. So I was, you know, five, six. And my sister said that she wanted pizza for supper. And my mother said, okay, well, there's the phone. Call and order pizza. My sister was like, well, I can't, I can't call and order pizza. They're not going to take me seriously. You know, I need you to call. My mother said, no, in this life, if you don't ask, you don't get. So there's the phone, dial the pizza place. And my sister got on the phone and dialed the pizza place and ordered pizza and hung up the phone. And my mother said, there you go. In this life, if you don't ask, you don't get. And I remembered that. My sister and I both remembered that moment. And it became this thing of like, what you mean? We could ask for what we want in this life. We don't have to wait for someone to come and offer to us. We could be the catalyst of our own lives. We can make moves for ourselves. And I just took that, took that to heart. That was something that I lived by. And I also, I understood at a, from a very young age, because my childhood was tough. For, for me, it was tough. And I understood that life was not a rehearsal, that every moment that you had was a moment you weren't going to get back. And so you had to go all in for everything. You had to feel, I felt so deeply about everything. I was, I was someone who was very emotionally available. I had huge feelings, way, way bigger than you should have when you're little, I think, because it's overwhelming and it's confusing and it, uh, and other people don't want you to have big feelings either because you, you are way, way, way less manageable when you have strong opinions and strong feelings and strong beliefs and strong ideas. I was very precocious. I was super bright and people tried to control me my whole life. And I refused to allow them to do that. And it made it very, very, very difficult because I made it difficult for other people. And so they made it difficult for me. And if I had listened to what people said about me when I was, when I was you know, growing up, I, I would be curled up in a corner, you know, non-functioning because I would have zero self-esteem. I would zero self-belief. I had zero confidence, all those things. I refused to believe um, what people told me, I knew who I was. I knew I knew what my intention was. And my intention was always good. And it was always to love people. So it was this, go out into the world with your good heart and your good intention, feel all your feelings, step into your passion, you know, live large and ask and give back tenfold in return to the kindness that has been given to you. And boy, oh boy, has that served me well. Man, oh man, oh man. Giving back, another thing that, uh, and I'm sure that's part of all of your your coaching and training is we weren't taught, right? It wasn't, it was about getting, it was about succeeding. Mm -hmm. It was about the bigger house and the nicer car and the bigger vacations and et cetera, et cetera. And which is all fine and well, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting and, and seeking and working towards that. But it doesn't fill you up. It 100%. does not, does not. You know, everyone thinks like I, you know, I, when I work with people, they think that if they get to the next rung of the ladder, suddenly magically their insecurity is going to disappear or their fear is going to, and I'm like, oh, 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 sister, brother, uh, 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 it's going to get worse because now you have further to fall. Now there's more pressure. And now if you were anything other than authentic in order to get to that goal, now you're terrified that you're going to be found out for being something that you're not. Plus you have to now sustain and maintain that false persona. It is just such a, it's, it's such a scam 
so much of what we are what we are told about how to achieve and how to succeed and what's worthy of success is bull sugar. It's bull. And yeah, you can say bullshit. You say bullshit. It's <laughs> bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. And nobody tells us differently. We we learn we have to learn that the hard way. Unfortunately, like I'm one of those people who will tell you it's bullshit. Like that's part of part of what my thing is. It's like no, 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 no. That is not the way you achieve success. And and if you do achieve this thing that you qualify, quantify as success, I, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be very surprised by what happens when you get there because you're going to go, wait a second. Why doesn't this feel like everything? Why don't I feel fulfilled? Why am I, I not happy? Why do I not feel? It's like, nope. You know, it's not like not that you did it wrong because I don't want to have shade for anybody's game or anybody's thing. But as we get older, we realize that's not the stuff that is the stuff, the true stuff of life. It's just not. And I, I wish everybody could figure that out when they were younger. I think this generation now understands that more inherently. I think we, I think, you know, Gen Z, is looking for fulfillment way, way, way earlier than than we ever did. They're, they're conditioned to to ask for what they want, to demand, you know, the, the balance in their lives. And so and I'm like, all power to you. It's going to be a struggle because all the people holding the purse strings and holding the reins are still people of our generation. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough slog, but I think that's the way it's going. I think it's going to be, you know, I, I think these kids are going to be living a more fulfilled life and they're going to have to because they're going to have less in terms of the money part, in terms of what they can own. It's harder to own. It's harder to get these days. So you got you to gotta be filled up by other things. And they're learning that. Couldn't agree with you more. And I wonder, I'd love to get your take on it. Do you think that is coming about because they're looking at, say, our generation and saying, oh my gosh, you know, my mom worked 12 hours a day, She'd come, literally, this was my life, come screaming in from taking, catching an earlier flight home to make it to the arena to see the hockey game, um, busting our asses to, to be there because we wanted to. So we were giving them the family values and we were showing them that family was important and whatnot, but we're killing ourselves to do it. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, the family stuff is good, but I don't want to be that. So are we modeling it better because we're finding a better balance than say our parents did? Because again, they worked their asses off, but they weren't necessarily present. No fault of their own. Just that was the way it was. Yeah, I think we. I think we. Every generation learns from the from the previous one. You know, a lot of people of, so. of my generation, they they didn't. You know, they had the stay at home mom, and they had the father who was never around because he was sustaining the household, and and the mothers were unfulfilled in in a lot of cases, not all, but many, or their lives were smaller, and and you know, we as women went. I don't want, I want to live a bigger life, you know, but then the pendulum kind of had to swing the other way. I like, I don't want to be that at all. So I'm going to be this other thing and I, I'm going to be powerful and I'm going to be, because remember that, you know, our, our, for me, my, my mother raised us at the beginning of the, the, you know, the women's lib movement. So there was a huge swing about what, what the expectation were, was for women, but a lot of women were already, were already sort of committed to the lives that they had. So we, as, as women, um, of my generation were like, we are going to take over the world. Nothing can stop us. We're going to have it all. Okay. There's no such thing as having it all because define all. What does all mean? It's completely different for every single woman, A. And B, there will be a price and you're going to have to continue to redefine what all means. 
you know, that because there is no perfect all for, for anybody. You know, there are so many women who go into the career world and then they have their first baby and they go, actually, I, I don't, I realize now I want to, I want to stay home with my kids for a period of time. And other women go, oh my God, I still do not want to stay home with my kids at all. Get me out of here. I want to go back and mo model for them what it means to be a woman out in the workforce. There are some women who try and find the balance. They become entrepreneurs. They, I mean, everybody's journey is, is different. That's kind of the, the message that we've, we've seen to the, the generation that's coming up now, the, uh, the millennials and the, and the Gen Z, is that you can kind of carve your own destiny. You can define it in the way that you define it. And there are now so many different models for you to look at out there that you, you pick the one that you think works for you or you create your new one. There is not kind of, you know, a set of expectations anymore about how we live our lives. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I could not agree with you more. And I think that's a great segue. Choosing your path, doing what you want to do. If you weren't doing what you did now, if you weren't coaching and, and being extraordinaire at all that you do, what would you be doing? Oh, God. I mean, if I couldn't help people to unleash their potential, I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do. I'll, honestly, I don't. I would, I would cry a lot. You know, I would I would beat my chest and go, why, why can't I help the people? Because that really is the most incredibly satisfying thing I have ever done in my life. And I've done some cool shit, some crazy shit. I've done a lot of things that people go, oh my God, that's so fancy or that's so this or that's so nah, nah. I, nothing makes me happier than when I see someone have a breakthrough or when, when I see that I've, I've had the influence to change their lives. Because, you know, in this life, if you have a lot of personal power, you can use it in a lot of different ways. And a lot of people use it for not such good things. They use it to be takers because personal power, you know, it's one of those things that helps you to be a taker. I, I wanted to use it like really like my superpower. I wanted to be a superhero for good and to help people. So I don't know, honestly, I don't know what else I would do. Although I last year in December started painting. And I'd never expressed any artistic talent in my life. I'd never been interested in that. I'd never had a hobby aside from boxing. I am not that sit down, calm, be introspective, you know, artistic person. Like you can't even play Pictionary with me because you just laugh and you can't recognize anything. But I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try and paint portraits because I love people. And maybe that'll be fun for me. I didn't know that painting portraits is the hardest thing that you could do I because I don't know anything. And I started looking at... Um, existing portraits that I liked and then trying to sort of copy them just in terms of like, where do eyes go on a face? Like, I don't even know where, I don't know where a nose goes. I don't know how to make lips. Like I know nothing. I never sketched, never did anything. And I started to, to paint um, and then started to share my experience on social media, just this crazy fun journey that I was having like, Oh, that's cool. Ooh, I didn't know you could do that. And that's a thing and whatever. And um, I, and I also had zero judgment for what I was doing. I would just paint something and then put it on social media and go, well, that's weird. And I learned about this and whatever. And then people started to react to my paintings. Um, and then someone that I know asked me if, if, if he could buy one of my paintings, I was like, no, you could have one of my paintings. You're ridiculous. Whatever. He said, no, no, no I want to honor your work. I was like, dude, seriously, just take, take one. Uh, he said, well, how about if I make a donation 
to a charity in exchange for the portrait. I was like, yes, that totally just hits me exactly where I live. I could do good with this, with this art. Um, and I posted about that on social media, like, how cool is that, that I could do good with my art. And then people came out of the woodwork and started to ask to buy my paintings. So I was like, this is crazy. And I bought the URL portrait for good. And I am now, you know, in my spare time, I'm painting portraits. I, they're not commissioned. They're just things that I want to paint. And, um, and people are, are buying them in exchange for a donation to an inclusive charity. And wow. Thousands and thousands of dollars. My, the, the site for Portrait for Good is going live probably uh, the beginning of next week. So, you know, I haven't had time to do it. And so that's this little sideline that, that I'm doing, which makes me so happy because I'm getting to do something and explore this aspect of creativity that I didn't even know that I had in me. Um, it's inspiring other people to do um, artistic work too, which is so cool. And I'm doing good. It's like, what could be better? That is fabulous. So I've got to ask, when you say painting, what what medium are you doing? Oils? Are you doing watercolors? Acrylic. Are you doing acrylic? Acrylic. Acrylic. Yeah, acrylic. Right. And, uh, and uh, you know, again, when you don't know what the rules are and you don't know how to do things, you don't worry about. You just figure it out for yourself and you develop your own style. And, you know, the the, the biggest lesson that I've I've learned in this process, which is a life lesson and it's a lesson about creativity, is that you cannot judge the quality of your own of your own thoughts and ideas and work you can't as soon as you start to question it everything you lose every, any freedom that you had in that process and i used to train people on that in terms of cor corporate um creativity about unleashing your your best thoughts and ideas fearlessly and so on but i really had to walk the talk and live it in that because every painting starts out as nothing then it gets really messy and really ugly and really disconnected in the in the middle of the process and my one commitment was to finish i was like i don't care what whatever i'm doing i'm going to finish the painting i'm going to share it you know, and so often I would, I would finish something. I was like, oh, that's kind of funky. I don't know about that one, whatever, but I'll just share it. And I'll talk about what I learned. And then somebody inevitably would go, oh my God, I love that. That's the one I want to buy. I'd be like, you see, yet you don't know, you know, and in this life, we cannot be for everyone. We cannot, it's not possible to be for everyone. So we have to be for ourselves. And, and then, you know, the right people will come. Because I know I would rather be, you know, accepted and respected and appreciated and, and even loved by a few for being exactly who I am than being accepted and, you know, validated and appreciated, you know, by many for being someone that I'm not. That, that doesn't count. It's empty. It's not, it's not real. So I'm like, you got to be for yourself. Do what, what brings you joy, what makes you happy, and allow the people who recognize value in that to, to find you. I think that is just an amazing piece of advice to to leave our audience on. You've shared so much. Leslie, this has been amazing. I'm so going to go check out your painting. Interestingly enough, I'm not a creative. My sister is incredibly creative, a master calligrapher and, and whatnot. I've never thought of myself as that creative person. And somebody pointed out during COVID, because again, we're all looking for something to do, right? So I took up watercolors. Oh. And... I am so going to look at that now as another through another lens because I have a whole bunch that I've I start and they I, I finish them but they're sitting in a pile going okay I can never use these 
Oh, right? it doesn't, that's, that's not the thing. That's not the point. The point is the process and what you learn in the process. Always, Absolutely. always, you know, that whole cliche of journey versus destiny or, you know, journey versus destination and so on. It, it is, there is no, des- you know what destination is? It's called being dead. <laughs> that's where we're all going. So what's the rush? Right. What's the thing? What's the, you know, and interestingly, I was, I was, uh, you know, on, on social media and I saw this, this great thing, this, a nurse in Australia who worked with hospice um, patients. So her whole work was in helping people to die and, and being there when they died. And she started to ask them about their regrets in life. What were their, what were their greatest regrets? I don't know if you've seen this, right? I have. And the fabulous. number one regret, number one was 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 people saying i wish i had lived a life more true and authentic to myself number 1 okay that is all you need to know about living an authentic life that's called living your life with swagger 100% this has been brilliant thank you so much do you have any upcoming events where you're speaking or I've got the whole rundown on your LinkedIn. I now have, I will put a a link to the Portraits for Good place where people can hear you or come see you. No, I mean, there's there's nothing going on at the moment because I do a lot of my stuff within, you know, conferences and corporate work and all the rest Mm -hmm. of it. But definitely come follow me on social media um, because I'm always, I do um, swagger tips every single day. So if you need a little boost of motivation, a little bit of Leslie in your face, you know, um, on TikTok, I'm... Um, uh, at Leslie M Speaks, Instagram at Leslie M Speaks. If uh, it's portrait for good, singular, so check that yeah, out. Okay. But you can also look at my work at, at the Leslie M on social media and LinkedIn. I'm I'm at Leslie M, and I just I'm just all about building the community of support and and love. That's what I care about. Fabulous. Thank you, Leslie, so much for today's conversation. It is just it's. I, I take so much away. I feel so selfish about doing these podcasts because I learn so much and, and it boosts every conversation I have raises me up. So thank you so much for your enthusiasm and your passion to my audience. Thank you for listening to Uncharted Journeys with me, your host, Kathy McKnight. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Leslie and hearing about how being unapologetically human and authentic can empower anyone to achieve all that they want. Be sure to check out the links and resources we mentioned in the show notes and definitely read her book, Swagger, Unleash Everything You Are and Become Everything You Want. If you're keen to hear more amazing stories from amazing women, head over to unchartedjourneys.net and listen to some of the other fabulous conversations that I've had. And while you're there, sign up for Uncharted Journeys um, on your favorite player, as well as subscribe for updates and announcements for the show. Thank you again for listening. See you next time. And until then, enjoy the journey. Yeah.